This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hi, and welcome to Lens Me Your Ears, the film podcast that takes a look at new films in theaters and elsewhere and compares them to films from days gone by. My name is Stephen Cook, and I'm a multimedia journalist with the Saltwire Network and the Chronicle Herald here in Halifax. I love it that you've got all these different titles, Stephen. I've been listening to the old shows, and you've got a different name for different things you're doing all the time. It's I, awesome. I know. <laughs> it's awesome. Uh, my name is Karsten Knox, and I am a film writer. I've got a blog called Flaw in the Iris. You can find it at halifaxbloggers.ca. And today, we are in the midst of Pride celebrations at home and abroad. Of course, here in Halifax, uh, they've post- been postponed until August, but it is Pride Month technically where we are. Uh, the Pride flag just went up today as we're recording uh, here in glorious CKDU FM 88.1. But uh, we thought we would take a look at a number of new and past LGBTQ plus films uh, from uh, spanning the gamut from comedies to dramas and beyond. And we'll be doing that right after this. So yes, this is Lens Me Your Ears. This is the film podcast. This is episode 125. We've done 125 of these. Can you believe it, It's amazing. A century and a quarter. I know. It's really something. We've been yammering on for an hour at a time about movies. And today is our second queer cinema examination uh, our second uh, uh we i guess maybe i think it was in the 50s that we did our last one it's been a little <laughs> while uh but the 1950s uh, <laughs> maybe not that long ago uh but yeah so this is our you know we decided to watch a bunch of movies for pride and um a broad range i mean we went looking on criterion because there are a bunch of films there that are have have queer content uh or are from filmmakers who are out and proud or featuring actors who have have come out uh and uh and so i mean there's a nice variety of stories about uh people living in the lgbt GBTQ community, excuse my <laughs> my my stumbling there, um, but uh, yeah, it's it's uh, obviously many stories to tell, and I actually find it quite uh, lovely that there are so many uh, that you can enjoy at any time. It's its own genre now for sure. Yes, and it was certainly uh, there are no two films alike in the groups of films that we saw, which was quite wonderful. And uh, you know, obviously, it's it was great when. Uh, Places like the Criterion Channel and even even Cineplex had a has well it still does as of right now has a wonderful assortment of Pride themed films available at uh, I think at sort of reduced prices if you will like it's a Pride special all all films must go no offer <laughs> will be refused but uh, the there is a, a terrific lineup from which uh, I was able to access a number of these titles um, and also maybe look at some things that I might not have otherwise looked at. So it it's, doesn't take a whole lot of digging to find some of the titles that uh, we came up with for this show. And, uh, you know, everyone uh, had had some particular truth or, um, you know, kind of reality to present that uh, was refreshing and uh, and also very entertaining. Yeah, and I wouldn't say, I, I mean, some of the movies I had some trouble with, but for the most part, I really liked what we watched. Um, now, to start with, uh, we got about three movies a segment. We got at least nine movies, maybe ten, because you saw one that I didn't. Yes. So so let's get to it. Uh, the Celluloid Closet was the first one that uh, watched. we watched. It's a documentary from 1996. It's available on the Criterion channel. And I found it a fascinating kind of look back 
because it shows how Hollywood filmmakers got around sort of the rules around censorship and content back in the early days of Hollywood. Um, how, but it was also it also shows how Hollywood has been very judgmental and supporting the status quo. So it's this kind of combination of like Hollywood could both be subversive. But it also could be oppressive. Um, and we hear from prominent out gay actors as they assess and interpret some of the films of the past. Uh, and sometimes they they really bring forward some hidden queer iconography, which I never would have known or seen. It's fascinating stuff. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, I, I found interesting specifically uh, that uh, that how in the 40s and 50s where gay love was closeted, at least there were there was lots of subtext and some of that was really hot. Uh, and then when it, when gay, you know, gay characters came out of the closet in the 1960s, it was, they were all shameful and, and miserable. And in the 70s and 80s, a lot of the gay characters became the killers and the antagonists, with uh, the exception of movies like Boys in the Band or Making Love. Um, yeah, I, I, I was encouraged that, you know, it's also seeing a documentary made in the 90s, how we have become more progressive in 2021. We've seen a lot of happy gay stories. We've seen heroic stories. We've even seen actual out gay characters playing out gay characters. We've seen films like A Fantastic Woman win an Oscar about a trans character and Moonlight about the life of a gay black character win Best Picture. You know, there's there's definitely progress been made. And I was happy to see that even from when this documentary was made. Yeah, I saw this when it came out. I believe it played at Wormwood's Theater and it was it was an eye-opening revelation then, and I now I have to confess at the time I had not read the book um, that had come out at the time uh, that the the movie was based on. There's a lot more info in the book itself, um, but uh, the, uh, the 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 movie uh, really traced uh, the portrayal of of, of same-sex love and how it's and and then of course all the. Um, myriad communities uh, in the LGBT community and how they have been kind of transmogrified over the years through the, the lens of the camera and, and, and how we've had these weird ups and downs of permissiveness and then, um, you know, and then censorship and then it kind of comes back and then it gets twisted again. Like you say, like, you know, all of a sudden we thought we had a breakthrough in the late sixties with films like boys in the band. And then we start to see, films like uh, Dress to Kill and so on, where all of a sudden, and, and Cruising, um, which was a notorious um, film and controversial film for its portrayal of a, of a killer in the New York uh, gay community um, in, in the late 70s. And, and, and it just seemed to go back and forth. And, and you know, it, it really has taken sort of this new generation of filmmakers and the kind of the freedom of, of independent film to, um, to kind of release the shackles, if you were, off, off of uh, creatives who want to show um, gay lives and in um, on the big screen. So this film shows what a long way we've come. And, uh, you know, and, and we can still think about what a long way we still have yet to go. But it, it is fascinating. And, and a lot of the clips in the film were from titles that were pretty much impossible to see. They really did their their research for this film and the the, the team behind this of course made uh, common threads stories from the quilt uh the film about the aids quilt as well as the great linda ronstadt uh documentary the sound of my voice so a really talented uh group of filmmakers and uh and here it was just looking at film history through this completely different lens of, of things that went under the radar being brought back to light and uh 
yeah, it's, it's even though a lot has changed since this film was made, it's worth seeing just to see what had to be accomplished up to up to that point in the mid 90s. Yeah. One of the things about the film that kind of bugged me a bit was they don't tell you who's speaking. You get a lot of talking heads, but they don't identify them until the very end. And sometimes they don't identify the films. Like I obviously recognize Marlena Dietrich in Morocco and Tony Curtis and some like it hot. But then, and then there's Gore Vidal, who is very recognizable, talking about Ben-Hur, Quentin Crisp and Harvey Fierstein. But there's a lot of other talking heads I didn't recognize. And so that was a little bit of a bummer for me. But otherwise, yeah, it's very much worth seeing. I thought Susan Sarandon had some really thoughtful comments about both Thelma and Louise and her role in The Hunger opposite Catherine Deneuve. And Tom Hanks sort of parses his own appeal as a non-threatening leading man in uh, in Philadelphia, which I also thought was very sharp. You know, Tom Hanks always impresses me when he's interviewed, uh, you know, outside of the, uh, uh, you know, necessarily even the talk shows he does. Um, he, he's very thoughtful about his role in in that film. So, yeah, no, I, I think it's great. Uh, the Celluloid Closet on Criterion Now. Um, so let's let's move on uh, to Saint Narcisse. Uh, this is a film that we saw recently at the Halifax Independent Filmmakers Festival. It just completed last weekend. And this is directed by Bruce LaBruce, written by LaBruce and Martin Gerard. It is a it is a it's been a quite a while since I've seen a LaBruce feature. I, I tried to remember the last Last one I saw it, it might have been Hustler White back in 1996. So I know he's been, he's kept making films. Uh, you know, he's a defiantly provocative, subversive filmmaker. Uh, he did TV shows and videos with titles like Gerontophobia, Gerontophilia and Sodomize Me. So, you know, he, he follows his particular muse, which is playful perversity and sex with a tongue firmly planted in cheek. Uh, so yeah, this is this might be one of his more mainstream efforts. Uh, Felix Antoine Duval plays Dominic, a good-looking young man who lives with his French-speaking grandmother somewhere in early 70s Quebec. Hopping on his vintage motorcycle, he, well, it wasn't vintage then, I guess, he tracks down his mother, Beatrice, played by Tanya Contoyani, who's living in the woods with a distrustful and angry Irene, played by Alexandra Petrachuk, uh, who might be immortal. Meanwhile, Dominic has discovered that his, he's got a monkish doppelganger at a local monastery. And his, that guy's name is Daniel, also played by the same actor, uh, who's in thrall of the obsessed Father Andrew, played by Andreas Apergis, who believes that Daniel is the embodiment of St. Sebastian. And that's pretty much the plot right there. I, I mean, that's that's all you need to know. Um, there's plenty of rambling detours, uh, a lot of nudity, uh, a lot of great costumes, and pretty terrific cinematography. I, I remember that uh, LaBruce's film from the 90s that I saw was pretty rough and raw, pretty uh, shot from the hip. This felt a lot more sort of professional and uh, and sort of slick. But what did you make of it, Stephen? Oh yeah, I like this film a lot. It it uh, it clearly draws on kind of the glossy Euro thrillers of the 1970s. It's I mean it's it's not really like a horror film by any stretch. Um, you know maybe in parts maybe a little Hitchcockian or what have you. Maybe like some of those Dario Argento films that aren't necessarily horror based, more um, sort of mystery and, and and murder and that kind of thing. Um, and, and so it has that kind of elliptical storytelling style, which I liked, you know, you, you, everything carries a double meaning of some sort, literally, because of course our, our main characters are twins, uh, which is always a great plot 
plot device when uh, when used appropriately and i feel it worked really well here with the the two twins one being the motorcycle biker and the other being the monk uh who didn't ask to be raised in a monastery i i, I like the 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 dichotomy between the two and i i felt that uh, felix antoine duval did a great job at, at playing those those two different characters and of course you know at some point they're going to switch uh places at some point to some degree and uh you know i guess that's a very shakespearean kind of uh kind of storytelling twist you know nothing new under the sun really but uh i i I thought that the film had a lot of humor um had a lot of um a lot of affection for its characters uh even maybe some of the more difficult ones and uh you know i like that kind of weird triangle between uh dominic and his mother and and her um her companion so uh and then of course you know we've got this very interesting family dynamic that comes into play when uh, when it turns out there are twins so uh, it's, it was a real treat to see this, uh, because I, I haven't, uh, seen a lot of Bruce LaBruce's more recent films. This is his first feature in about four or five years, I think. And it's, uh, it's great to see him do something with such, uh, skill and style. Yeah, it is fun. I will say that. I, I think the thing I appreciate the most about it, it doesn't take itself entirely seriously. Uh, and I did like the lead actor. He, you know, I guess he's pretty new to the acting game or at least feature film acting game. And, uh, I, I thought he was pretty compelling, uh, in both roles. He's just very charismatic and very good looking. So that helps. He, when he, you know, stares off into the distance and he, you know, and they get his profile and his, his chiseled jaw. And I'm just like, clearly a uh, Bruce is enjoying looking at him and he's making us enjoy look at him, (laughs) Uh, you know, and that's cool. Uh, Yeah, it's, um, you know, and, and the plot doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I don't think I quite ever understood how it was that Irene uh, was like, is either the daughter of the, of, of like someone who, who, uh, uh, Dominic's mother was in love with previously. There's there's elements of the plot that I don't quite think I caught the first time around. So maybe I'll need to watch it again sometime. It is it, something we should say, having seen it at a film festival, not sure how, what sort of release this film, Saint Narcisse, is going to get. But I guess we I guess what we're saying is people should look out for it. Yeah, I mean, we were lucky to have it here at HIF, uh, Halifax Filmmaker, Independent Filmmakers Festival here in Halifax. So uh, that was a great outlet for it uh, to appear here and, and, and maybe, um, you know, maybe the, the Halifax queer film fest will uh, return in some form at some point and be able to show more films like this. I don't know if anything's been planned. I think it's been a couple of years since we've had one, but, uh, but I'm, I'm sure there are other platforms and ways that these films can get out there and, and, and it kind of makes me want to go back and revisit, uh, some of the Bruce LaBruce films that I've missed and hopefully they're not too hard to track down. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, all right. So let's talk about one more film here, uh, before we move on and, uh, Cowboys from 2021. This is one that you suggested, Stephen, and I had not heard of. It's fairly recent, I think, uh, written and directed by Anna Kerrigan. We found it on Hoopla which uh, for people who don't know, it's that terrific uh, streaming service that you can subscribe to through the Halifax Public Libraries. And of course, many library systems, I guess, across Canada. Um, And it's, they got a lot of good stuff on there. Cowboys, I found is sort of a well-meaning, if slightly clumsy indie drama about an American family, the Johnsons, where the father, Troy, played by Steve Zahn, he appears to suffer from I think something approaching bipolar disorder. He abducts his trans son, Joe, played by Sasha Knight, a trans actor, uh, from his conservative's mother, Sally, played by Jillian Bell, and makes a run for the Canadian border across the Montana wilderness. So the first part of the film is told largely in flashback. Troy, Joe, and Sally in happier times. 
Troy is exuberant, but clearly fine when he's taking his meds. Um, He's the one who Joe speaks to first when Joe feels like he's in the wrong body. And Troy, to his credit, gets what his son is going through. Sally is a little more uncertain and a little more conservative. And while she's caring, she's a whole lot less accepting of the idea of gender dysphoria. Um, So a violent incident splits up the couple and Troy puts together this desperate plan to take his son away. Uh, Enter Anne Dowd as Faith. Anne Dowd is an actor I've seen forever. She's amazing. Anyway, uh, I think um, The Handmaid's Tale is what I'm most familiar with her uh, recently. She plays a local cop and the excellent Canadian actor Gary Farmer uh, also appears as a friend and mentor to Troy. yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting film, um, not without its a few problems, but I think really worth seeing, especially given given the story it's telling. I, I really quite like this film. I, I mean, mostly because of the performances. I thought Steve Zahn was terrific as the dad who's in a pretty difficult spot. Uh, you know, he's had troubles with the law, as you say, he's got mental health issues, uh, which are exacerbated by this flight into the wilderness with his son and uh you know and it just you know you that's where the a lot of the tension in the film comes from because he becomes unpredictable and and you know he's obviously very confused and at the mercy of his uh his brain chemistry so uh and 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 sasha uh knight as um <laughs> so, Joe. young Joe, yeah. sorry, um, has to step up and uh, and basically, you know, take charge and and help get his dad to safety. And I, you know, Sasha Knight, I thought was uh, quite wonderful in the role as Joe, as uh, this uh, young boy, you know, who's who's you know in a small conservative town, you know, fighting against uh, all those kind of prejudices within his family and without, and uh, and trying to aspire to the life uh the authentic life that they want to have and uh it's you know you can only imagine how difficult it is for um you know a young person in this situation and this kind of locale and then of course his father feeds him all this stuff about canada and how people are nicer here <laughs> and uh you know more accepting and so on and i guess that's kind of the bait um and he's kind of escaping things as well you know his past life and his troubles and and so on and of course uh it uh it's not to be. It's not um, not an ideal uh, way to, to cope with your problems by running away from them. But uh, you know, overall, I, I liked it. I, lo- I liked the the look of the film. Uh, you know, the, most of it's shot outdoors, and I liked the fact that it pretty much jumps into the story right away as well. Uh, I mean, I, judging from the trailer that I saw, there's a fair bit of subplot material that was cut out to kind of ease the the story along because it basically starts on the night that they they first make their uh, escape or run for the border or whatever and then kind of fills you in with the flashbacks and i think it's a it's a pretty good way to get the story going um and uh, kind of maintain those kind of parallel uh storylines from the past and the present um i think the mom was a lot more religious in in a different cut of this film oh, yeah. as evidenced by i think a couple of lines in the in the trailer there's a little bit of that left in the film and and Jillian Bell is great as the mom who has to you know, has a real up uh, uphill battle to to kind of accept uh, that she has a son and not a daughter, and then that's uh, you know, and that's played. It, maybe it was less sympathetic originally. Hard to say, but um, you know, it's it's a it's a tough role for her to play because, of course, she's the bad guy to begin with, and uh, has to sort of fight against that particular current. 
and 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 out as terrific as the 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 sheriff who knows there's more to the story uh than what she's been told and uh and she's a big part of why this film works too yeah i agree i i think also steve zahn is one of those actors who doesn't get a lot of lead roles he's reliable no matter what i always think of him in movies well i guess out of sight is the movie i think of him the most and as part of that ensemble he's so good in that and it's great to see him get a chance to play someone like right at the front of this movie and and be this really interesting thoughtful uh considerate caring father who is also dealing with being having this mental illness this issue around mental illness and uh yeah a big part of the appeal of the film is him um i will say that the film's effort to try and make it, it turn it from an indie drama into like a western feels a little forced i don't know if i bought all of that i don't know if i bought joe's interest in the cowboy life even though clearly his dad is telling all these stories about being a cowboy and, and the Western, you know, the myth of the West. Uh, and that's tied into like escaping to Canada. Um, but um, there's like this twangy score and this kind of effort to turn this into the, the Western tale. I don't think it really takes hold. Um, I also have to say that they put Knight in a wig that's terrible for about half the movie and I yes. never buy it. And it's a little distracting. I, I have, I found myself becoming really a wig critic. <laughs> in movies like i'll watch something and go okay that's a terrible wig and it'll take me out of scenes in a way that never used to and now i'm i'm kind of there anyway (laughs) that's my own problem i also think that there's this like the western theme of men with guns and that doesn't really go anywhere i feel like it's touched upon but Anyway, for me, though, I think my also personal problem is that the trope of the hyper precocious child who ends up smarter and more mature than any adult in the room, that is something I just have a lot of trouble with in especially in indie films. But uh, but that's no taking nothing away from the actors. They're all really terrific. I think that there's just some clunky elements of the script that don't quite work. But all things to say, I still think it's very much a story worth telling. And I'm glad to have watched it. It's also quite brief under a, under a, an hour and a half and it really tells a lot of story in an hour and a half so that's to its credit so yeah i think in terms of trans stories this is definitely worth checking out it's on on hoopla now hi and welcome back to lens me your ears the movie podcast that takes a look at new films in theaters and on streaming platforms and compares them to similar films from days gone by And today, Karsten Knox and myself, Stephen Cook, are taking a look at some recent and not-so-recent films with an LGBTQ plus theme in honor of uh, Pride Month and Summer Pride Celebrations, which in many places are taking place all throughout the summer. And uh, here in Halifax, I think we're doing the bulk of it in August, uh, mostly due to the pandemic and, and so on. But that doesn't mean we can't dive into these films now and celebrate them and maybe you listening folks can uh, can enjoy them at your leisure at uh, at any time this summer and uh we're going to start off our next segment with a film that has been widely acclaimed since it um since about a couple of years ago and that is portrait of a lady on fire written and directed by celine skiyama it's the tale of marianne a young artist played by noemi merlon uh in the late 1800s or sorry the late 1700s who is brought to a remote island uh, in uh, in Brittany in northern France and has been commissioned to paint a portrait of young Heloise, played by Adele Hainel, who is uh, fresh out of the convent and is about to be married. So basically she's gone straight from the convent or going straight from the convent into an arranged marriage. Um, 
set up by her mother, La Contesse, played by Valeria Golino, who maybe you'll remember her from, say, Big Top Pee Wee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she had a, has had a hell of a career. Many, many other fine films. But that's where I first saw <laughs> Valeria Golino. And uh-huh. she's been in lots of great stuff since. But uh, And uh, and there's also a, um, a young uh, maid working in the manor on this island, Sophie, played by Luana Barjrami, who also has a bit of a, an awakening, awakening as a result of the friendship between these two women that develops as um, Marianne paints Eloise's portrait. Now, uh, Eloise, uh, her mother is very concerned for her well-being. She had a sister who uh, either fell or jumped from a cliff. Uh, and uh, I think maybe there's some concern that... Uh, that lightning may strike twice in this family. Uh, tra- you know, tragedy may reoccur. So they're trying to be very delicate about uh, about Heloise. Uh, they don't even want her to know she's being painted. Um, Marianne is supposed to befriend her, but then kind of paint her in secret so that this portrait can be made. And uh, of course, uh, anytime you keep a secret, it's bound to come out. And uh, the friendship between the two that develops is very rocky, but also very passionate. Um, it's uh, it's a slow burn as uh, as they become closer over the course of the film. Eventually, they become lovers, especially when the contest is away, and they basically have the the run of the the island and the and the, the manor to themselves. And um, and they also help uh, young Sophie, who it turn, turns out is pregnant. And so there's uh, quite a bit about what it meant to be uh, a young woman at the mercy of the the requirements of society at the time and uh, the way these women kind of rebel against those um, constraints. And that's kind of the beauty of the film, this, this these wonderful performances and this beautiful relationship uh, that develops as a result, even though with uh, with the norms of the time, it, it is perhaps not meant to be, but uh, celebrated at the same time for for what it could be. And it, it's it's a beautiful film. It's it's uh, you know the, the, has these gorgeous locations uh, shot in the uh, the French countryside, and it's also um, got this luxurious pace. If uh, you know, I was reminded of uh, Stanley Kubrick's Barry Lyndon while I was watching this film. I think that's a pretty apt comparison. It's a similar time period, and uh, it has that similar kind of stately grace to it and in the middle of it all these very intense very focused laser sharp performances uh where you really you know feel feel the passion and uh and also the 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 intellectual connection between um, marianne and eloise so uh if you haven't seen this film up to now i mean i felt felt like i kind of slept on this i believe it did play here um on a big screen and I'm regretting not seeing it under those conditions. But even so, I, I thought it was quite a beautiful and uh, heartwarming film. Yeah. I, you, you would love, uh, you love that Kubrick film. I am I not I know, like my I least know. favorite Kubrick film. And I like this movie a lot more than that. Uh, I did see it. At well, the, it doesn't have Ryan O'Neill in it. So that helps. <laughs> um, I saw a portrait of a lady on fire at the Finn Atlantic international film festival. And I remember being pretty wowed by it, but also felt that it, it had some pacing issues. Like it took me a while, takes a while getting where it's going. And it's quite a, um, there's a lot of emotional and narrative austerity in that opening act. But uh, when the characters finally click, that's when it really, I mean, it really <laughs> catches fire. Sorry. Um, but it, it, I think the film like examines and indulges the female gaze in a way that I think is really unusual. Um, it Again and again, we see Eloise through the eyes of Marianne, the observed and the observer, uh, you know, through Eloise, we sort of, it reminds us that we are watching and she's looking back. And it, I, I think as a, an audience, we're kind of drawn into it that way. We're, we're made to feel a little bit self-conscious at first, maybe, but then 
we're really a part of the story and and you know it's easy to fall in love with these characters and that's something the film does really well as they fall in love with each other um you know and there's this almost complete absence of men on screen which means when a dude does show up he feels like a totally unwelcome invader into this world um yeah i mean it's um there's it's a the cinematography is absolutely gorgeous. I, sometimes I think Siama's visual metaphors are a little bit on the nose, but there's a number of lovely touches. There's a juxtaposition of two women in profile against the ocean. There's a shot where three figures rise in unison from the long grass. That's a gorgeous shot. And then there's a there's a scene where there are a young woman the the uh, you mentioned the housekeeper. She's she's in pain and she's on on a bed uh, and she's sort of writhing there and having such so much difficulty while a baby touches her face. I think there's a remarkable breathtaking moment since of cinema. And I mean, no one can fault Celine Sciamma for choosing the most stunning magnetic performers and lighting them in the most fetching way possible. I think my favorite role and my favorite performance is from Merlant, who plays the painter. She, she at the time, I remember, she sort of reminded me a little bit of Emma Watson, as if Emma Watson had a French sister. <laughs> yes, or, I could see that. Or maybe Deborah Winger's secret Parisienne daughter. Like, there is something there in, in uh, familiarity in her dark eyes and the way she really, uh, she emotes. Um, yeah, and it's funny, you know, how much there suddenly there, this is kind of like a subgenre of film. There's Ammonite, with Kate Winslet, which is a film, and uh, Sir Sharon in a film I enjoyed, but it's not quite up to the standard of Portrait of a Lady on Fire. It, it probably suffered from being so close in the wake of this film, too. Like, yeah. It just, you know, you could just judge it by what it wasn't. And this is, <laughs> by having this as an example, I suppose. Yeah. And I mean, it's the outdoors, the seashore, and this sort of, and the period film. And of course, there's one called The World to Come, which I have not seen myself, but I've heard is quite good. And I mean to seek that one out. And then then recently, Saturday Night Live did this uh, this sort of like, you know, comedy trailer uh this making fun of this recent subgenre which uh maybe didn't help but anyway it's yeah it's i'm i'm all for these movies provided they aren't too much alike i mean i think uh i think they they do a good job i mean clearly portrait of lady on fire is the is the queen of of these films oh for sure and uh like i say i wish i could have seen it in the theater but uh on a decent sized uh monitor at home it still uh, still does it justice just because of those performances yeah and it's um it's on crave uh and i believe it's there's a criterion version on disc i don't know if it's on the on the streaming chat service but uh but you can definitely find you can buy it and for your home library and i think it's very much worth getting yeah i saw it through uh, the cineplex platform so oh, yeah there you go um so we should talk about saving face this is written and directed by alice Wu from 2004 and, you know, she wrote and directed a follow-up, a coming-of-age drama called The Half of It, that I'd really like to see. It's on Netflix. Apparently, you've seen it, Stephen. I don't know if you want to say a few things about The Half of It before we get back to her earlier film. Yeah, well, The Half of It uh, is, I mean, it, Saving Face is 2004. This is 16, later, 16 years later. And The Half of It definitely shows a lot more uh, style, a lot more confidence, uh, a lot more skill with uh, with handling multiple characters and so on, um, and it's you know in in many ways a better film, but it, you know it it sort of hovers in the realm of teenage romance and identity and and um, and so on. Whereas whereas um, Saving Face is, is feels a lot more conventional as a uh, sort of an indie romantic comedy, but at the same time it's it's still pretty charming in a lot of ways with its uh, two main characters, two two uh, young women who become attracted to one another uh, in the middle of a very conservative 
old school Chinese American community based in uh, in basically in, in New York in both um, Manhattan and in uh, Flushing um, in Brooklyn. So. Uh, Queens. Or Queens, rather. Yeah, the Chinatown. I've been there, actually. I know. This is how I know. <laughs> it's way, way out there in Queens. Yeah. I, you know what? I was thinking of Flatbush. Oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> and I, that's not the first time, because I once got off at the wrong subway station, because I couldn't keep Flatbush and Flushing straight in my brain. But um, so so basically, um, Michelle is, is a, a, a Kruzayak, is a surgeon, Wilhelmina, who's trying to be a good granddaughter and good daughter in this uh, traditional family. And then her mother played by Joan Chen, who's 48, gets pregnant, and which throws everything into turmoil. You know, she, you know, the, the daughter, she's being this hardworking uh, resident at a hospital. She's going to become a doctor, be the pride of the family and all that kind of stuff. And then her mother, who's, um, f- whose husband has left her, she's suddenly pregnant. Everyone wants to know who the father was. She's not going to tell. Uh, and uh, all of a sudden, she finds herself cast out <laughs> by her, her parents, the grandparents. And... Uh, Poor Wilhelmina finds her kind of caught up in the middle. Um, meanwhile, she meets this dancer named Vivian at uh, kind of a weekly social function at uh, at a Chinese restaurant in Flushing, and uh, and you know her 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 mom is you know while pregnant is decides that she she can't be. Uh, you know, pregnant or give birth without having a husband. So her, her mother's on the search for her husband. Uh, you know, Wilhelmina's on this new romance with Vivian, who's a dancer. Um, you know, they come from different worlds. And of course, uh, you know, Wilhelmina's always busy because the, the hospital has her on the run, has her on call all the time. And and uh, Vivian is more of a kind of a bohemian, laid back uh, kind of lifestyle. So there's a bit of a clash there. But then, uh, of course, Vivian is offered a prestigious ballet gig in Paris, and uh, all of a sudden, all these choices have to be made. And, uh, you know, it, this aspect of the film feels pretty familiar if you've ever seen a romantic comedy. But uh, but I but I quite like the performances. Joan Chen is terrific as the mom. And, you know, she, she gets to be comedic, but she's also kind of heartbreaking, too, because she's in a difficult spot, having been rejected by her parents and feeling very alone in this very vulnerable position. Uh, and, um, and also Lin Chen is very good as Vivian, the dancer, who kind of... Uh, is a, a lot more confident and a lot more straightforward than uh, Wilhelmina uh, is, and uh, there's a nice dynamic there in, in the in the young couple as they figure out how to kind of announce their love to a you know up to a community that's uh, maybe not prepared to accept it. Yeah, I like the film. I felt I felt the sort of like awkwardness of that sort of indie. Uh, rom-com structure. Some of that just hasn't just doesn't work so well. I guess maybe because and. It, it's partly because uh, the story of young gay love in a repressive culture is a story we've seen before. And I, I mean, even as recently as Happiest Season from last, it was a Christmas movie, basically told a very similar story. Um, Ang Lee's The Wedding Banquet is another one yeah, that comes to mind. Yeah. And I just thought, I thought that the, the script here wasn't, is a little more uneven. And so I didn't uh, maybe enjoy it as much, but I would say that you're right. Joan Chen is terrific. And it just reminds me how good she is generally. I got a little chuckle out of the fact, the scene where she goes to the 
video store looking for sort of Chinese movies of some sort, and she sees she sees the Last Emperor on the shelf. Yes, of course, because <laughs> course, she starred in the Last Emperor. Yes, Last Emperor and Joy Luck Club, I think, are the one the two actual Asian dramas. Yeah, that's the, right in the store. Yeah, um, but uh, it's great to see her in this role. Something that she can really get her teeth into because I've always thought she was a terrific actor. She's she's still working. She was in the Jessica Chastain assassin thriller Ava recently, um, but you know it's that's not like a great movie or anything. But anyway, it's nice to still see her out there, and she's she's just amazing in this. Um, and I liked I did like the the love affair between the two the two younger women. I found that uh, Krusiak's character Will is frustrating. I mean, she just says so. She's completely crushed by the expectations of her community and her mother and her grandparents. It's hard to believe she can be this accomplished. She's like an, a super accomplished surgeon, but also be so hopeless in her personal life. Uh, she and her mother, all they do is watch soap operas because it's the only thing they can do because they won't talk to each other about what their big secrets. And uh, and then there is a um, uh, like a, a New York, of course, a New York story. There is this this uh, this guy who lives across the hall who comes in, who hangs out. Uh, Otto Essendo is the actor. He's great as the neighbor Jay and Jessica Hecht, Hecht as the colleague at the hospital. Also really good. You know, I'm I wouldn't necessarily give this a bad review if I was going to if I was the sort of person to give it like a a star rating, I'd probably give it a 3 out of 5 maybe. Um but that seems uh, fair. But uh, I did like that the film ends with a spit take. I can't, I kind of have an affection for any movie that ends with a spit take. Yeah, I was I was I was really worried for a bit there because there is like an airport showdown, which is one of my least favorite kind of storyline uh, rom com cliche, tropes, rom-com yeah. cliches of yeah, all time. Yeah. And uh, you know, knowing that Vivian is uh, has to make this decision about whether she's going to take this prestigious ballet job. In Paris, even though it's not what she really she really wants to do, modern dance. It's like take the ballet gig. It's Paris. It pay you know do the modern dance when you get back kind of thing. It's like I just like I long before it happens that like, there's going to be an airport scene. There's going to yeah. be an airport, and of course there is. But thankfully, it's not the the ultimate scene. You know, there's there's more after that, and thankfully it it kind of uh, you know um, uh, perverts that whole idea a little bit but um at the same time it's just like yeah i kind of wish it hadn't gone there but um but for the most part it's 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 an enjoyable film and and with some endearing characters and even if it does feel a little bit familiar uh i I like some of the the cultural background of it that uh that is brought into the storyline that at least gives it a a unique setting yeah no i'm with you there uh saving face is from 2004 and uh yeah i watched it um on demand whereas where i was able to track it down um so the last film we should talk about before we finish the segment, Together Together, which is a much more recent film uh, written and directed by Nicole Beckwith and uh, also on demand right now. And this is a film I had a, almost a violent ambivalence to. There was stuff about it that I really liked and there was stuff about it I absolutely different, didn't. So I'm going to get the stuff I didn't like about it out of the way right away. Um, it's a story of, of, of two women, of two people, Matt and Anna, played by Ed Helms and Patty Harrison. He's 40-something single guy who's with someone for a long time. It didn't work out. Now he's alone and wants a child. She's a millennial who once gave up a child for adoption when she was a teenager and she's estranged from her family. Uh, It's a little unclear while she's choosing to become a surrogate. That's what she wants to do. I guess it's the money, you know. But here she is. She's carrying Matt's child. So it's about the relationship, this awkward sort of official relationships between this dude and and this woman and uh, and she is basically serving a role for him to to provide him with a child so he can become a father. Uh, 
Matt Edhelms, he's the quintessential 21st century milquetoast sitcom dude. He's a well-meaning schlub. He's also kind of hopeless. Um, and Anna is quirky and smart, even as her default mood is sort of sullen. It's a, it's character types we've seen in a dozen TV series. Um, it's all sort of full of awkward comedy in a way, and I'm getting kind of sick of awkward comedy. And there's also this sort of like smug self-satisfaction in, about deeply traditional ideas around the joy of children and the loneliness of single people that kind of got to me as a, as a child-free person. I felt a little bit like put upon by this movie. Um, and uh, <laughs> you think I would feel that too? As yeah. A, also a single, um, or not single, but but un. Uh, unreproductive person. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's just maybe that's just me. Uh but uh yeah, and I I also felt like it was weird that Anna is like this cultural rube who's never watched an episode of Friends, but then offers a thoughtful and cutting takedown of Woody Allen's Annie Hall in Manhattan, which is, you know, don't get me wrong, it's a legit opinion, a characterist inconsistency aside. But this is a movie that, this is one of the most Allen-esque movies I've seen in a long time. There's white on black typewriter font in its, in its uh, titles, and its storytelling structure is right out of a New York, the New York filmmaker basically perfected it decades ago. So I, I just think that you, if you're going to criticize Woody Allen, go for it, but don't borrow from him while you do it. <laughs> so those are the things that bothered me about the film. Um, what I really liked about it was this really unorthodox cross-generational relationship, unlike the kind of sort of thing we haven't seen in American movies. It's structured like a rom-com, but it's not about romance. It's a modern scenario of convenience and common interest that pushes against some of the more traditional values that I mentioned about, you know, kids being the greatest thing in, since sliced bread, uh, which I, I sort of associate with more conservative storytelling. Um, you know, and it, it takes opportunity for discussions around personal boundaries and expectations, a market that serves and preys on people who want children. And a social arena where loved ones feel entitled to weigh in on your every decision. Also, Fred Melamed and Tig Notaro in it. And they are awesome. Um, so I think I've talked enough, Stephen. Let me hear which. <laughs> let me, now I've rambled. I've, go ahead. It, Take it away. It is a mixed bag. Uh, I feel like uh, Patty Harrison as Anna. Um, it, it feels like maybe it was written for um, Aubrey Plaza. Maybe it, it feels like uh, kind of a very Aubrey Plaza-esque kind of role is the, the cynical young woman who has to uh, kind of rise above her her own insecurities and, and take on a new challenge that goes against uh, every fiber of their being. Um, but uh, I like Patty Harrison quite a bit. Uh, Patty Harrison feels like a fairly warm kind of actor um, who elevates the material that, yeah, uh, I'm with that you she's there. given to work with. For sure. Um, you know, I I guess, I mean, Ed Helms is a, is a guy I can go hot or cold on as, as a comedic actor here. You know he's he's really uh, I would find her find him really annoying if I was Anna. <laughs> he's just, he's he's always kind of in her face and and uh, you know he's very concerned about what she eats and so on and shows up at her place of work and and that that all feels like uh, you know I mean they talk about having boundary issues but they never really do anything about it. There's there's a brief moment in the film where they're kind of at odds a little bit because of it, but I think it could have gone a lot more into that territory. And I, you know apart from the fact that he's sort of lonely and, uh, you know, single and lonely. It, I don't know that it goes further enough into why he wants to be a dad. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I totally agree. It's, you know, it just, it kind of starts with him interviewing her as a, as a potential birth mother. Uh, and then we're off to the races and he just wants to be a dad. And, uh, you know, he's, he's basically, I guess, you know, he's made a small fortune developing apps and, um, you know, I guess wants 
you know, someone to share his success with in life and hasn't had any luck as far as uh, uh, attracting um, a partner goes. So, but uh, that aspect of the film I felt was a, was a bit, um, bit lighthanded as well. Uh, and so, even though they they do have a, they do have some chemistry together, I think, um, you know, I think she she sees the good in him, uh, but it's 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 uh, a little tough to swallow from time to time. Yeah, 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 I agree. And and there's you know there there's group therapy scenes that are full of stereotypes. There are there are problems here that don't quite get solved by the end of the film. But I, I it's funny, you know, neither of us have mentioned why we chose this film for our LGBTQ. Oh, yeah. And I wonder, maybe we shouldn't say, maybe it doesn't matter. It, I mean, it, it never occurred to me when I watched the film. It, it wasn't until after I discovered, you know, the specifics. So it's, I, I'll just say that one of the one of the actors is trans and I hadn't, I didn't know this. Uh, and I just, it made me actually give the film retroactively a lot more uh, credit, in fact, just for the uh, adventuresomeness of the casting. I thought it was terrific. And I thought that particular actor did a great job. So, you know, full full marks to the filmmakers there for, for that decision. Hi, I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson, host of The Food Podcast. But do you know what? It's not just about food, it's about people and their stories shared through the lens of food. The Food Podcast has been described as an audible fairy tale. How about that? You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. So come join us. We would love to share our stories with you. And on to our third segment of Lends Me Your Ears, the film podcast. We're talking about films with uh, queer content or uh, LGBTQ themes. And in this segment, actually, we're going to look at films that have out gay or queer characters, queer actors, I should say, uh, in them. And uh, so that's what took us to watching The Glorious, um, which stars a number of prominent actors. It's basically a biopic of Gloria Steinem, the American journalist and feminist leader. Uh, it's directed by Julie Taymor. Uh, and it is, uh, it kind of jumps around in her life from her childhood. Four different actors play Steinem during the course of her life. Uh, most prominently Alicia Vikander in her sort of early 20s, and then later on in life, Julianne Moore. And it switches back and forth between them, even finding all these characters together on a bus where they get the chance to discuss their life challenges, which is a really interesting sort of stylistic uh, decision uh, for storytelling. And I uh, I sort of wish I could do that with some of my younger selves. But anyway, um, this is a film with a lot of ambition, visually and stylistically. Um, it... Uh, you know, it's not what I would call a great film. The first half is really sluggish to get going, but um, but I did I did very much enjoy parts of it, and I think I learned quite a bit about the uh, about the the film. And and uh, yes, the out uh, the queer queer actor we're we're uh, we're you know want to highlight. I guess it's Janelle Monae uh, as Dorothy Pittman Hughes, who's uh, quite good. So is um, Lorraine Toussaint as Flo Kennedy. I also great to see Bette Midler again as Bella Abzug. Uh, all of these, uh, you know, so. We learned, I learned quite a bit about the sort of feminist movement of the 70s, but I just felt like in some respects, the film uh, as a biopic does that thing that so many biopics stumble in is try to cover too much time where they would be much more effective if they just chose like 
a, a shorter period and and find some truth about a person's life just in what they are able to accomplish in a small a shorter span of time you know what i mean yeah i it spends a lot of time on her childhood with uh her dad an itinerant uh, salesman played by timothy hutton uh and you know it keeps going back to that time and i kept waiting for that to click uh, with the present, or the if not the present day, the kind of her heyday in, in the 1970s as a as a journalist and a publisher and, and feminist icon, and I don't know that it ever quite does. I mean, it's an interesting childhood, I suppose. You know, living kind of you know one paycheck at a time, and her dad having all these dreams, but also being kind of uh, kind of uh, foolish and. In his uh, ambitions and his ideas, and and putting his family at risk, and and also having a mom who had some mental health issues, uh, you know, it's all very intriguing. But I don't know that it necessarily signifies why Gloria Steinem became the woman that she did. And um, and then that's that's uh, that was a bit of a problem. But I but I but I found that uh, Julianne Moore and Alicia Vikander playing Gloria, playing adult Gloria, are both uh, fairly riveting in this, um, you know, as we kind of hit the highlights of her life, like when she went undercover as a, as a Playboy bunny at a Playboy club and and, and as she founded uh, Ms. Magazine and kind of uh, set the publishing world on its ear, uh, you know, and, uh, and, you know, provided a voice for women that... Uh, that uh, that just wasn't there at the time, and I, you know, I think maybe more focus on that aspect of her story would have would have helped this because uh, in that uh, you know was such a, a landmark and 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 you know paved the way for so much more in terms of publishing and writing and 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 women's voices getting published and and heard um, and that, that's certainly in there, but I thought maybe a more of a focus on that. Might have, might have helped, but it's you know Julie Taymor doesn't want to tell a conventional story. Obviously, uh, you know she's not a conventional filmmaker, uh, and you know so you kind of have to take the good with the bad as far as the glories goes. Yeah, no, I'm with you there, um, and and it's like it, it, as with a lot of unsatisfying biopics, uh, you start to wonder, well, is there a good documentary that would like really answer some of the questions I have? <laughs> Sometimes I, I I find myself tilting towards that with stories of people's lives, but any anyway, no, I agree with you there. Um, and speaking of biopics, let's talk about J.T. Leroy, directed by Justin Kelly. Written by Kelly and Savannah Knoop from uh, Knoop's memoir. It's on Hoopla. And uh, for those who don't know, J.T. Leroy was the literary alter ego of Laura Albert, who wrote a series of popular novels in the 90s and, and early 2000s. Leroy was supposedly the son of a prostitute from the South who moved to California. Albert pretended to be Leroy in the phone interviews and kept her literary persona under wraps. But in person, she enlisted her partner's sister, Savannah, to impersonate J.T. Leroy as a sort of androgynous, bewigged, possibly transitioning author. Uh, now, uh, Kelly has a lot of experience as a filmmaker. I uh, I remember I watched his uh, his real his sort of real life drama, I Am Michael, which I didn't think was awesome, but I I do feel like he's a, an authentic LGBTQ community voice. Um, the film is a little rocky in places. Um, I felt like I didn't really know what it was about um, in its themes. Is J.T. Leroy about authenticity? Is it about loyalty and friendship? Is it about art? Is it a love story? Is it about gender identity? Uh, I think it wants to be all of these things, but doesn't quite manage to do it. Yeah, it is a little chaotic uh, in the way it tells the story, but I suspect that uh, the lives of uh, of Laura and Savannah really were fairly chaotic uh, 
and and maybe having a, a an anarchic sense of 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 that is, is the way to go with uh, telling the story. There is a documentary. There's an excellent documentary that tells the story um, of JT the Roy and gets and 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 I think uh, uh, the real uh, Laura had a had a role in that documentary. So it does. Whereas Savannah has a role in the the drama. So you know maybe to get the full picture, you need to watch them both. But I uh, I don't think that one supersedes the other necessarily. I I thought. Uh, you know, Laura Dern is great. She swings for the fences <laughs> in a big way. <laughs> yes, yes. But um, you know that, that it's it's a larger than life character, especially when she starts putting on the British accent, which is true. That is what she did in real life. Um, you know, just this outrageously fake British accent as she's um, JT the Roy's kind of handler, manager, publicist, whatever you want to call her. And um, you know, as Savannah just kind of gets caught up in it, in uh, you know, playing this. Uh, former young male hustler and the the discomfort that uh, they have in this role is is uh is kind of what gets you um you know get, kind of gets you on, on the edge of your seat wondering how it's going to fall apart and yeah you know courtney love actually has a pretty great role as as, as one of the people who thinks she might be on to what's going on uh, a little earlier than most and uh yeah it, having seen the documentary i kind of knew the story i was getting into but it was it was nice to have this kind of more emotional sort of impulsive version of it as well. Yeah, I, I really, and I really like Kristen Stewart. And this is something I've said on this podcast before is I've become a major fan of Kristen Stewart in the years since the Twilight movies. And of course, she's very much an out queer actor and she just goes from strength to strength. I mean, I, I don't always love the movies she's in, but I always love her in them. And I feel like this is also uh, something, there's something special here for fans of hers. Um, you know, the one thing about the movie that, maybe the thing that bothered me the most though, is that this must've been a real ride for these people. Like they must've had a lot of fun pulling one over on the, you know, entertainment Hollywood industry and the industry of publishing. And we don't just, we just don't get quite, we don't get a sense of that it was that much fun. We just get a sense of the anxiety and the, <laughs> the, the tragedy looming around the corner. And I think that may be part of what, what bugged me about the film. Um, we, we should move on to our final film of this episode of Lends Me Your Ears. And uh, it's Elliot Page in My Days of Mercy, which is on demand now. A film that completely I had almost no knowledge of. And I'm amazed because I really enjoyed the film. And I was kind of surprised that it had almost no sort of um, currency, cultural currency at all. Directed by Tali Shalom Ezer, who is a, an Israeli filmmaker. And uh, it tells the story of two people who are on opposite sides of the capital punishment issue in the United States. They meet at a protest outside of a prison where someone is being put to death on death row. And they spark. Uh, and Elliot Page plays Lucy, who's 22, a regular at these and very much against the uh, capital punishment. And um, uh, and then Kate Mara plays Mercy, who is there at one of these protests supporting her father, a cop whose partner was shot down by the man who's being executed. And despite this chasm in their ideological values, they really connect and it becomes a sort of a love story. Uh, and it's it's really it's really funny. Like for a film <laughs> with such heavy, heavy themes, it is so funny. I was laughing all the time through this. And I think that's what surprised me the most. Yeah, it's it's a really strong role for Elliot Page uh, at this uh, late state in their career, and you kind of wish that they'd had more roles like this maybe earlier on. Uh, uh, but uh, but and it makes you kind of wonder what's going to happen next in in that career. And 
here, uh, you know, Lucy is a character with a lot of humor and a lot of emotion and a lot of warmth and empathy. And it's a really well-developed character. And, and, and the way that Lucy clicks with, uh, with Mercy, uh, Kate Mara's character is, is fully convincing, which is, uh, must've been something to pull off considering that ideologically they're, they're at opposite ends, but I think they, maybe they admire each other's convictions or they have this desire to at least understand the other side's point of view. And, and, um, and there obviously there are other complica- complications that come into play as the film plays out, but, but uh, you know, when they're together and there's that warmth and affection between them, uh, you can, you can really feel it. Yeah, no, it is a wonderful film and, you know, uh, yeah, I wish that it got more attention. I hope that maybe people listening to this will give it a chance because there's a, an amazing wit. It's one of those movies where, where everyone is, is clever and funny. And you know that in real life, people aren't that funny, but it really is great to see a movie where everyone has a great line. <laughs> yeah. And I, I wonder if the fact that it does have this, you know, that is very strongly you know, against the death penalty, I wonder if that had any effect on its uh, ability to get uh, distributed and and seen in a in a wider, um, you know, in a, in, a, in a wider stage. But uh, it's uh, it's 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 definitely worth checking out, and it, at least you know it's not that hard to find uh, on uh, on various streaming platforms. My Days of Mercy, I think I saw it on the Cineplex platform as part of their Pride collection, so it's it's not that hard to track down. that brings us to the end of this episode of Lens Me Your Ears, the film podcast. Thanks so much for listening uh, to us. And we've got uh, 124 other episodes to be found on your podcasting uh, platform of choice that uh, I hope you'll check out, too, if you're new to this uh, to this show. Um, we can be reached on Facebook. Uh, we've got a Facebook page, and that's how everyone should pronounce it, Facebook. Uh, <laughs> and Twitter, Lens Me Your Ears. Uh, Twitter is also a place you can find Stephen. Yes, at N-S underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. And my Twitter handle is named after my film blog called Flaw in the Iris. Many, many thanks to CKDU for the studio facilities and for airing the show every second Tuesday at 5.30. And thanks to our producers at the Village Soundcast Network. Thank you once again for listening to Lends Me Your Ears. Lends Me Your Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Send feedback to Lends Me Your Ears podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.